Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up in this episode, we'll be chatting about a new experimental technique that physicists have developed to study how bacteria move about. Research that's part of the burgeoning field of active matter. But first, magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, and proton beam therapy are two powerful techniques of medical physics. The former gives us real-time images of internal structures of the body, and the latter can deliver a high dose of radiation to a tumor while reducing the damage to healthy tissue. Now, researchers in Germany are working on combining the two techniques, as Physics World's Tammy Freeman discovers. Proton therapy is an advanced cancer treatment technique that can irradiate and destroy tumours with high targeting accuracy. And soon it could become even more precise with the addition of real-time magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, during treatment delivery. Early in January, Onkare, the National Centre for Radiation Research in Oncology in Dresden, officially launched the world's first research prototype for whole-body MRI-guided proton therapy. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Aswin Hoffman, who headed up this research project. Welcome to the podcast, Aswin. Well, thank you, Tammy, for inviting me for this uh, interview and for giving me the opportunity to explain the need for better image guidance in proton therapy. Super. So first of all, could you briefly explain how proton therapy is used to treat cancer? Mm -hmm. So um, in radiation therapy, external beams of ionizing radiation are directed onto the tumor in order to sterilize the cancer cells with a therapeutic dose with the intention to cure the patient. And currently, two types of beam modalities are used clinically. The first one is photon beams with high energy X-rays. And the second one is particle beams, in particular with high energy protons. Um, the advantage of proton therapy over photon therapy is its target dose conformality due to the finite range of the protons. This means that proton beams can be made to stop inside the tumor volume and hence provide uh, a better sparing of healthy uh, organs surrounding the tumor. Also, the number of beams in proton therapy as well as its slightly increased um, relative biological effectiveness, contribute to lower doses um, in radiation-sensitive tissues. And um, these facts offer the potential benefit of less side effects and less toxicity than with conventional photon-based radiation therapy. Okay, brilliant. So how will MRI help improve proton treatments further? Well, um, proton therapy is more sensitive to tumor motion and organ deformation occurring during those delivery fractions than conventional photon-based radiation therapy. Therefore, the targeting accuracy of proton therapy for moving tumors in, for example, the thorax, so lung tumors, 
or in the abdomen, liver tumors and, and, and um, tumors in the pelvis, like, for example, prostate cancer, is currently compromised by the lack of fast and high soft tissue contrast image guidance during irradiation. And MRI is um, expected to solve this issue because it has an excellent soft tissue contrast and it furthermore also enables continuous imaging to capture organ motion. Now the idea is to synchronize the dose delivery with the tumor motion to thereby increase the targeting accuracy of proton therapy um, to reduce the side effects and hence potentially allow an even higher therapeutic dose to be delivered to the tumor. So this combination of MRI and proton therapy hasn't been achieved before and for a long time was considered by many as a pretty impossible task. So what are the main technical challenges of combining an MRI scanner with a proton therapy system? Mm, so the, the main um, technical challenge is the mutual electromagnetic interactions between the proton therapy system and the MRI system. Um, the proton therapy system produces magnetic fringe fields that would overlap with the highly uniform static magnetic field of the MRI system. And consequently, the MR images may suffer from distortions and no longer provide a reliable geometrical information to guide our beams to the tumor volume, which, for which, as a consequence, uh, the tumor would be underdosed and the healthy tissues could be overdosed. But also the other way around, the magnetic field of the MRI system might interfere with the proton beam delivery system, potentially leading to a malfunction of that proton dose delivery system. And last but not least, um, due to the Lorentz force, the protons, which are positively charged particles, are deflected by the presence of the MR magnetic field as they are transported from the proton dose delivery system to the treatment volume inside the MRI system. And all these effects need to be eliminated or taken into account or compensated for. So how did your team overcome all of these obstacles? Well, in 2018, we demonstrated proof of concept with a first-generation research prototype in-beam MRI system in our experimental room after um, first conducting a magnetic survey in that room in which the MRI system was intended to be installed. And in this way, we identified the dominant sources of magnetic interference and we found ways to avoid and to compensate for these disturbing effects during MR imaging. Um, in addition to that, we also used an open MRI scanner to allow an unobstructed beam transport from the beam exit of the proton delivery device to the MR imaging volume. And in addition to that, we performed a lot of dosimetry experiments inside the uh, MRI system to characterize the magnetic field-induced effects on, on the beam deflection, um, a deformation of the radiation field shape, and also uh, distortions on the dose spot. And we mapped out the static magnetic field of the MR scanner 
um, and incorporated that in the proton treatment planning system such that the magnetic field of the MR scanner can be taken into account during those calculations. And so far, we have not seen any adverse effects of the MR magnetic field onto the proton beam delivery system. That's great. And you worked with some industry partners. What, what were these collaborations? How did they help? Well, the industry partners supported us in installing open MR systems at our proton research beam lines, making it possible to initiate technical feasibility studies, studies and demonstrate um, the first proof of concept. Later on in the project, we found industry partners who took on the challenge to design and produce a first prototype for whole body for a whole body MRI system that is capable of real-time imaging. And this particular system went into scientific operation and I'm still excited and proud that our industry partners have not hesitated to take on this challenge with us. So, yeah, I mean, as you said, this the, the big news is that the first MR-guided proton therapy prototype was launched um, in early January. So how do you see the first few months of its operation panning out? Have you started it, um, the initial experiments yet? Mm -hmm. So first, commissioning experiments with the new MR uh, proton therapy system have already been planned for the next month. In the first step, um, the electromagnetic interactions between our proton pencil beam uh, line and the, the new in-beam MR scanner will need to be assessed. And here we will address two particular questions. So the first one is, does the presence of the new MR scanner affect the proton beam delivery system due to interferences coming from the static magnetic field of the MR scanner or from the acoustic noise that is produced by this MR scanner? And the second question is the other way around does the proton beam delivery system affect the MR image quality during beam scanning? And in addition to that, we will also need to map out the static magnetic field of this new in-beam MR scanner in, in, in three-dimensional space, since this is needed as input for the uh, proton treatment planning system to enable those calculations in the presence of the magnetic field of the MR scan. Okay, and once these system characterizations are complete, um, what will come next? Well, from a medical physics point of view, we need to do a full commissioning, both of the beam delivery system in terms of the dosimetric quality, um, but also for the MRI system in terms of image quality and geometrical fidelity of the images. Um, our radiobiologists here at Onkaray are very interested in assessing um, and in understanding the magnetic field-induced effects onto the biological effectiveness as the directionality and the strength of the MR magnetic field might also influence cell killing. And last but not least, from a medical legal um, as a perspective, we will work on the regulatory aspects for future clinical trials, both in terms of ethics approval and um, certification in accordance with the medical device regulation MDR. Okay, so yeah, quite a lot of work to do 
coming up. Um, do you know, are there any other teams working on a similar system? Well, so far, I'm not aware of any other groups worldwide working on a similar system. That means a system um, that is capable of real-time imaging, that is a whole-body MRI system. Um, also, the fact that the in-beam MRI system is rotatable around the patient, enabling patients to be scanned both in a recumbent or in an upright position makes our system um, unique. And um, this kind of MRI system requires a relatively large room to be installed in because it's a, it's a big, it's a heavy machine. However, most of the research rooms in particle therapy centers are not large enough to accommodate such a large MRI system. And I also think that our research room here at, at Oncore is unique in its kind with um, an, uh, a floor area of approximately 250 square meters. Um, the only other team working on MR particle therapy that I know of is at the German Cancer Research Center, DKFC in Heidelberg, also in, in Germany. Um, they have a smaller research room and started working on a compact MRI scanner after we showed first of um, first proof of concept with our compact MRI scanner back in 2018 at our proton research beamline. And both of these compact MRI scanners have in common that they were originally designed for diagnostic imaging of extremities. So these scanners are not whole body scanners like the newly installed one in our research room. And um, where we have shown first proof of concept uh, of in-beam MRI in combination with proton beams. Our colleagues at Heidelberg have combined their compact in-beam MRI scanner with their horizontal research beamline for heavy ions, so not protons. And they performed first experiments with MRI-guided uh, scanned carbon ion beams. That, that's really interesting because that's sort of that's another um, type of particle therapy using the carbon ions instead of the protons that's it's less prevalent, but it's certainly it's another option under investigation, isn't it? Yeah, and it also I think it also provides less um, <laughs> scientific challenges or less problems because the um, heavy ions, uh, heavy ion beams are not deflected by the presence of the MR magnetic field as much as the proton beams are. So from a treatment planning point of view, it is an easier problem to, to solve than for proton beams. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Um, and then finally, my last question, when do you think that your system might be used to treat the first patient? Hmm, <laughs> I often get that question. Um, so, so our aim with the new prototype system that was installed last week, the one that offers real-time MRI imaging, um, well, we hope to be able to treat a first patient in about five years from now um, because there is still a lot of technical challenges to solve, but also from a regulatory point of view. But with our, our previous um, compact prototype system, so the one without real-time imaging capabilities that is still in our, our research room, we expect to treat a first patient within the next two years. Oh, okay. And I guess 
you'll be using both systems in parallel to sort of just continue developing this approach? Yes, because the, as I said, the experimental room is, is large enough to host two MR scanners and they will indeed be operated more or less in, in parallel. Okay, that's brilliant. Well, thanks very much for talking to us today. Thank you. Thank you, Tammy, for giving the opportunity to, to explain the need for better image guidance in, in particle therapy. Thank you very much. Our next guest is Catherine Skipper, who's joined the Physics World team as Features Editor after doing a PhD at the University of Bristol, where she studied active matter. Hi, Catherine. Welcome to Physics World and to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. Catherine's here to chat about some fascinating active matter research that's been done by scientists in Germany and China. They've gained important insights into how E. coli bacteria propel themselves. So, Catherine, before we discuss this specific research, can you tell us a bit about the field of active matter? What sort of systems do physicists study and why? So, if you've taken a physics undergraduate course, you've at some point encountered statistical mechanics where you're describing a large system by the statistics of the individual atoms or molecules. Um, so I remember using you know, the icing model to predict um, or to, to model ferromagnetism or to predict a melting transition, or you use statistical physics to describe superconductivity. Um, and broadly, active matter is a branch of physics that uses statistical mechanics to describe living systems, because a lot of the functions of living systems are performed by a lot of biological units that work together. So uh, a well-known example is um, a murmuration of starlings, where these sort of beautiful coherent patterns are produced on length scales that are much larger than the individual birds. Um, but cells do this as well. Tissues in the body often have very different properties um, to the individual cells, and they can perform functions that the individual cells can't. Um, and actually within a cell, the cytoskeleton is a bundle of active fibres that contracts to move the cell. Um, and this particular piece of research is um, on swarms of E. coli bacteria, which are also an active system. Um, so these are complicated systems, but you can turns out you can describe a lot of their behaviours using physics. So a lot of people who study active matter have backgrounds in biology or biophysics, but I think one of the key questions of this field is what's the smallest amount of knowledge of biology you can have and still be able to describe these biological systems? How much of this can be encompassed by statistical physics? Okay, and, and you, you sort of hinted um, uh, about this latest research. This is a study that was done by Christina Kurtztaller of the Max Planck Institute for the Physics of Complex Systems and Yongfen Zhao of Sochow University. And they've developed a new technique for studying the motion of bacteria. So, so what exactly did they do and, and what have they found? Um, so it's been observed before that E. coli bacteria, when they're in um, when they're in like a dense suspension, they produce these these coherent patterns. They've been shown to uh, form like rotating elliptical patterns. Um, 
Their motion can look like turbulent flow with vortices. They've actually been described as a superfluid in some in some contexts where the bacteria is actually pushing the fluid along, so it effectively has a negative viscosity. So there's a lot of interest in understanding how these behaviours come about. So And so the way that the O. coli move is quite particular, and it's important for understanding how they behave. And it's called, it's called run and tumble motion. So if you look at an E. coli bacterium moving, it will swim forwards for about, about a second, and then it will suddenly rotate and start moving off in a different direction. Um, so that's, that's what run and tumble motion is. So scientists who are interested in E. coli bacteria want to understand how the patterns that you get, the, the collective motion that I was talking about, is linked to um, the motion and particularly to the length of these straight line runs that they're doing between, um, between tumbling, between changing direction. Um, and it's possible to engineer strains of bacteria that only tumble, they're constantly changing direction. Uh, you do this by turning off um, the expression of a gene. And it's been proposed that if you could take these genetically engineered E. coli um, and add um, a reagent, a biological reagent, it would be possible to slowly turn this gene expression back on so they start moving in a straight line again. They start performing these runs between changing um, between changing direction. Um, and so, yeah, scientists are interested in understanding how that would change the, these coherent patterns that you get. Uh, but the challenge, that sounds very straightforward when I describe it, but it's really hard to do experimentally, and that's what the paper is about. So, so is the, the difficulty actually following a yeah. bacterium? Because I suppose they're very small, and do, do they move very quickly? Is it difficult to... I suppose they move in and out of the focus of the microscope, and it's, it's probably very difficult to, to follow one. Well, you can follow... If you only have one um, bacterium, E. coli bacterium, or only a couple, you can follow, you can, um, you can track them. Um, you can, you know, you have a, a, an algorithm that's basically labeling this is E. coli A, this is E. coli B, this is E. coli C, and it measures where, how they're moving. But if you've got a lot of them, it's uh -huh. really hard. And you can sort of imagine that you have two E. coli, they come very close together, and it's hard to tell whether they've, they're going in a straight line and they've crossed paths, or whether they've both at the same time turned in different directions. Um, so it's really hard to, accurately track the trajectories over a very long period of time. And so these researchers in China and Germany, they've, they've, they've got around this problem. Is that uh, uh, yeah. that's the news? So they've actually, there are actually, there's a companion paper to this paper, um, which uh, contains a lot of like mathematical derivation. But basically um, what they have done is yeah they they're not tracking the individual bacteria what they've done is they have a sequence of three-dimensional images just from a like a, a standard optical microscope and they're taking the Fourier transform of those images and then they have this second companion paper where they are doing some very complicated maths using you know the, st the statistics of run and tumble motion to extract length and time scales from these Fourier transformed images that tell them how fast the bacteria are moving on average and how far they move, how between changing direction. And, and so what did they find? Was it, a, was it in line with what people thought E. coli were up to or was it a complete surprise or 
as often in science, a bit of both? Um, so what they, they do is, as I, as I mentioned, they take these genetically engineered E. coli and they get, add this reagent that is predicted to um, turn on the, the run motion between the, between the tumbles. And using this, um, this mathematical treatment they have, they're able to show that that's, that is indeed what's happening, you know, even in these quite dense suspensions of bacteria. So they're able to, yeah, they're able to demonstrate something that has been theorized but hadn't improved. Ah, uh, okay, and that sounds important because I suppose now that we know this technique works, other scientists can use it um, and do, do further studies. Yeah, I think if you've done any kind of research, you will recognize the frustration of having a very cool idea or a very cool theory that cannot, or you don't have the methods to, to test it or prove it. So um, I think it's, it's a really nice, uh, neat way of getting around the difficulty of tracking these bacteria. And it is something that they talk about this in the paper a bit that could be applied um, to other cells. And, and I suppose E. coli, you know, I suppose if you've heard of one bacterium, it's going to be E. coli. It's, you know, it's a bacteria that lives in our guts and it's used as a marker for, for pollution. So I suppose, um, it, you know, it's very important to understand how E. coli gets around. Yeah. Um, so I think there's, there's two reasons to be interested in them. Firstly is, yeah, they, they are they are everywhere and it is um it would be useful to know whether some of the collective behaviors they have are evolutionary whether they they perform whether they are enabling the um the bacteria to perform what perform useful work but also as you said they are they're everywhere they're relatively easy to do experiments on you know that's easier to study than a swarm of like a, a murmuration of starlings for example in a lab so they are used as a as a model active system, uh, and but to use them as a as a model system, we need to understand exactly how they work. And are, are there any implications in terms of um, you know creating artificial swimmers? Because I know that you know some researchers are interested in you know creating tiny tiny sort of objects that can swim in maybe the same way as a as a bacterium swims. Or, or is there any is there any information there or, or would that be something that's further down the line i mean i think you could you could presumably use this technique to study synthetic active particles which are these these tiny these tiny sort of micro couple micro that uh, cut tiny beads a couple of sort of micrometers across um and yeah if you can if you can use this to study the bacteria you can use it i would presume to study those i i think one of the i guess one of the tough things about the e coli is that they they unpredictably change direction. I think that does make them, I would, I would assume that makes them very, very hard to track. Whereas synthetic active particles, they change direction much more slowly. So I think they are a bit easier to track, but I, I would assume you can still use this technique. Mm. Well, that's great, Th uh, Catherine. Thanks for, for explaining that. Um, if you'd like to learn more about this study, it's described in open access papers. And those papers are published in Physical Review Letters and Physical Review E. And the best way to find both papers is to read a synopsis of the research that appears on the American Physical Society website. That synopsis is called Characterizing the Swimming Gait of a Bacterium, and it's by Catherine Wright. 
Thanks, Catherine. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Aswin Hoffman, Catherine Skipper, and Tammy Freeman for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester is in conversation with the astrophysicist and author Emma Chapman and they chat about the history of radio astronomy. Chapman, who is at the UK's University of Nottingham, talks about the do-it-yourself ethic of radio astronomers and highlights the valuable contributions made by people outside the established academic community. That podcast is called Radio Pioneers, the Enduring Role of Amateurs in Radio Astronomy. And you can find it on the Physics World website and at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.